This morning, we are going to start uh, a series that is looking at uh, the visions of the book of Revelation. Uh, we've done sermon series in Revelation before. We've done a couple of times we've looked at the, uh, the seven letters of Revelation that are at the beginning of the book. Uh, we've done a couple sermons on Revelation 21 and 22 that looks at uh, the picture of heaven and New Jerusalem. Uh, but we've never really tackled uh, the visions that are contained in the middle of the book of Revelation. And uh, to, be, to be pretty forthright, most churches don't. <laughs> uh, most churches don't because uh, it's pretty complex material. Uh, there's been a lot of uh, theological uh, controversy over much of the content. But we decided that we're going to give it a go and we'll see uh, how it all works out. And so part of all this is uh, the challenge of approach. How do we approach this very interesting book uh, at the end of our Bibles? And uh, I thought, as I thought about it this week, I thought about how uh, some people tend to be what they call left brain dominant people and others are right brain dominant people. I hopefully you've heard this before and I, I think it's scientifically verifiable. Uh, but if you are a left brained dominant person, then that probably means that you are good at uh, analyzing things and, and sequencing things. Uh, you're probably pretty good at things like logic and math and science. These tend to be the Presbyterians in the crowd, let's be honest about it. Uh, if you're a, a right brain sort of person, then you uh, think a little differently. You view the world a little bit differently. It might be uh, in a more creative way. You might be better at things like art uh, and feeling and image. Well, when it comes to the book of Revelation, if we look at it from a purely left-brain approach, then things tend to go sideways pretty quickly as you approach this book. Because if you do that, then you approach the book of Revelation as a code that you just sort of need to decipher. If you can just sequence it right, if you can analyze it right, then you can figure everything out. And a lot of people throughout history uh, have claimed that they've figured it out, uh, that they've decoded the book, they've written books about it, they've sold a lot of books, and then a lot of those books gotten, have gotten thrown away because they were proved false. Now, personally, uh, I tend to be more of a left brain person. That's kind of how I function a little bit. Uh, so in order to engage my right brain side, this is what I did this week. And I, don't, I wouldn't challenge everybody to do this. So this is what I did. I, I, I took a bunch of pieces of paper and I read the section, in particular the section I was going to preach on, and I actually tried to draw it. I actually draw, drew it all out on a piece of paper in order to try to engage my right brain as I thought about this. Now, I am a terrible artist, so no one will see these pictures beyond me, uh, but it was an effort to try to get the, the, my whole brain involved in this process. Because uh, Vern Poitras, who's one of the, the leading experts on the book of Revelation, said the thing that you have to understand about this book is at the end of the day, it is a picture book. It's not a puzzle but it is a picture book. And so as we read the book, we shouldn't try to get caught up in the sort of one-to-one -one correspondence or the logic of it all, but instead I think we ought to be captured by the picture that it presents to each one of us. And at the end of the day, it requires imagination. It requires imagination. That's something that, that we Americans aren't very good about. And so as I read our passage this morning, I'd challenge you, engage your imaginations in what we are reading, in what we are hearing. If you've got to close your eyes to do so, nobody's going to judge you, but allow your imagination 
to really capture you as we read this passage. Uh, So I'm going to read a a little bit from Revelation chapter 4, verses 1 to 3, and then I'm going to read all uh, of Revelation chapter 5. So uh, listen to this amazing vision uh, that was uh, seen by the Apostle John. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had, appeared, that had the appearance of an emerald. Now skipping down to, to chapter 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll, written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. And so he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he'd taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new, new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you've made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, speak to us through your word. Uh, Help us to understand uh, the pictures that this book presents to us and what they communicate to us about you, about your character, and about the nature of our own lives. So Father, I pray that as we look at these visions contained in the book of Revelation, that we would catch a vision of you in your greatness and your wonder, and may it change everything about us. So speak to us in your word now. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.
This book of Revelation is written by uh, the Apostle John, and it's written by him really at the tail end of John's life. Uh, If you go back to the Gospels, uh, John was the youngest of all the apostles, uh, probably just a little kid when he was following uh, Jesus Christ during his life and during his ministry. Of course, after the ascension, uh, John uh, takes on the mantle of apostle and spreading uh, the message of Jesus Christ. And so he did that for the remainder of his life, life committed uh, to spreading the message of Jesus Christ. But it was not an easy life. Uh, John did this in uh, the Roman Empire, and the Roman Empire was often uh, not very friendly to Christians. Often they were subject to much persecution, uh, and so John had a way of getting himself in hot water a lot uh, in this ancient Roman world. And so when we get to the book of Revelation, the Apostle John is at the end of his life, and when we find him in this passage, we find him exiled on the island of Patmos. Patmos was uh, a, a penal island of the Roman Empire. And uh, prison life is never a fun life. We all know that. And so for the Apostle John, no doubt there was a lot of boredom. Uh, there was a lot of monotony in his uh, prison life. And most certainly that boredom and that monotony must have gotten to him. It might have been difficult. It must have been the hardest part of his life at this point. And then as we read in Revelation chapter 1, all of a sudden, while John is exiled on this island, all of a sudden he looks up and he sees a door being opened to the heavens. And immediately he's carried up and he's carried into uh, this door and into this existence and he receives in many ways an earth-shattering vision for his life that changes everything about him. As I thought about that this week, I thought about the, the, the what's now old movie, uh, The Wizard of Oz. Hopefully you've all seen The Wizard of Oz before. I think it was uh, made in the late 30s, if I'm, uh, if I'm not so sure, but I think it was made a long time ago. Um, of course, it was with Judy Garland, uh, but what was interesting about that movie, it was one of the first movies uh, to use this uh, new technology called Technicolor. Okay, and if you've ever seen the movie, you'll know it starts black and white. It starts in sort of dull and, and drab Kansas in the, in the Midwest, and then all of a sudden Dorothy gets to Oz, and as she opens the door into Oz, all of a sudden these brilliant colors burst onto the scene, and the rest of the movie is all shaded in these brilliant colors. Well, this was one of the first movies to use this technicolor technology, so I've often imagined myself being in the movie theater and for the first time being used to watching movies in black and white my whole life and then being for the first time exposed to this new technology of technicolor and the radiance and the colors that it brings to life. Well, I imagine the Apostle John in a very drab and dull prison experience, but all of a sudden he's caught up into a vision of the heavenly realm, and it overloads his senses. He sees these very strange, in these very bizarre, radiant images, and and some of those images he tries to describe for us in the book of Revelation. Others, you can just tell, they just defy any sort of description, so he doesn't even go there. But what I think these images communicate things to us 
And I think there's several things that we see in particular from the picture John presents to us. Uh, Several things in particular that we can see from our passage this morning. And then we get to see the response that those pictures demand of us. And one of the, the, the concepts I think that becomes very crystal clear from the very beginning of John's vision is this. And that is the, 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 the concept or the picture of majesty. That John is blown away by the majestic nature of what he sees in his vision. Our passage tells us he's ushered into the throne room of God. And just imagine this. He says that there are radiant colors of jewels everywhere. The color of jasper, the color of carnelian, uh, the color of, of emerald. He says there's a throne at the center of all of it, and that throne is, is flanked. It's encapsulated by a brilliant rainbow with brilliant colors. He says that surrounding this throne are, are 24 elders, and those elders are, are all clothed in white, and they have, they have crowns upon them. He says later in the vision that in front of the throne of God, uh, there are seven torches that are flaming. And also in front of this throne, there is a great sea of crystal glass uh, that is before everything. Uh, John tells us also that there's lightning and thunder constantly emulating from the throne of God. And so no doubt the, the ground was shaking all around everyone as these flashes of lightning and the sound of thunder captured everyone's ears. Uh, John tells us there's these bizarre creatures, the ox and, and uh, a lion with multiple eyes and multiple horns, and, and they're all surrounding this throne of God. And then at one point, all of the creatures, all of the elders, they cast their crowns at the feet of God, and they burst into the first song of Revelation, which is what? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the song we just sang in part. And so John, of course, is blown away. He's overcome by what he's seen. He's overcome by the sheer majesty of what he sees. And what that majesty does is it invades John's dull and boring prison experience. It invades that dull life with the fullness of color and passion and majesty. Now, friends, I think we probably live in what is the busiest culture uh, known to all of human history. Um, We all feel busy. We all know what that's like. Uh, And we also have some of the most brilliant and innovative technology at our fingertips. So we're busy. We have all this technology. Yet at the same time, I think many of us struggle with being bored. We struggle fundamentally with a certain boredom that tends to gnaw at our souls. I mean, we all know what that's like. How many times have you gotten caught just scrolling through your phone for 20 minutes and you're just overcome by the sheer boredom of all that you see? And I think part of that is because we were created to be captured by the sheer majesty of God. But when we lose that picture of the majesty of God, then our lives are captured by dullness and the boredom that tends to set in. And I think sometimes what we tend to do is we often place God within our boredom as well, 
that in many ways he becomes defined by the categories of our boredom. Uh, Eugene Peterson uh, thought of this as well. He wrote this in one of his books. He said, we, rec- re- we recklessly reduce God to a checklist of explanations or a handbook of moral precepts or an economic arrangement or a political expediency or even a pleasure boat. God is reduced to what can be measured, used, weighed, gathered, controlled, or felt. Insofar as we accept these reductionistic explanations, our lives become bored, depressed, or even at times mean. You see, friends, this is, I I think, why we need the Scriptures to wake us up to the majesty of the God that we serve. We need the Scriptures to disrupt us. We need them to disrupt our, our tame pictures of the God of the Scriptures. We need the majesty of God to enter into and shatter the boredom and dullness of our lives. So I think that's really the first thing we see here. We see the majesty of God on display here. But what I, I also think we see here is, is the sheer control of God as well. We see a God who's a, who is majestic, and we see a God who is radically in control. And so what John does is he describes in detail everything that's happening around the throne. So we see a lot of the details here. What he doesn't describe a whole lot is the one who is sitting on the throne. The only thing he says about the one who sits on the throne is in verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 3. It says, And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And so it doesn't tell us much about uh, the actual character of God who's sitting on the throne, but it does tell us what God is doing. What is he doing? He's sitting. He's sitting on the throne. The great king, the king above all things, is sitting on his throne. And that is a sign to all of us that he rules over all things and he controls all things. Uh, Poitras, who is a commentator on this, I think uses a really helpful uh, picture to help us understand what we're seeing here uh, in God. Uh, Think about John. Think about how he has been arrested. Think about how he has been subjected to the powers of the Roman Empire uh, that was true of his day, and he felt subject to the forces that were in control in his life. And who is John? Just one man in the face of this entire Roman Empire. And so what he gets here is a picture of the fact that God is bigger than all of that. That God is even bigger than the Roman Empire. That God is in control of all things. And so the illustration Poitras uses is this. We've all been to an airport before, right? We've all been to airports. Uh, And if you look at an airport from the ground floor then it all seems to be very chaotic, doesn't it? You walk through the terminal and uh, you you see lots of people that are sometimes running, sometimes that are in a rush. We have the whole debacle that is the TSA where we have to take our shoes off and take our belts off and 
people are trying to keep their pants up while they go through security and all this sort of stuff. And then you get back into the terminal and you look out of the windows and what do you see? You see the, the luggage cars going everywhere. You see um, uh, traffic control people. You see planes coming from this direction and planes coming from that direction. And it all just looks so chaotic from the ground floor. And so Poitras suggests, but imagine going up into the control tower and you're above everything, you see everything, you can look at the radar, you can see the science and the art to the planes coming in. They're taking off here, they're landing there. And what you realize is that it is a very well-ordered system and routine. And so the chaos on the ground floor has now become ordered as you see it from above. And friends, I think this is what the book of Revelation reminds us, that the chaos of life and human history, maybe the chaos that our individual lives feel day in and day out, all of it is ordered by a God who is sitting on his throne. Nothing catches God by surprise. Nothing happens while he is sleeping. All of it is ordered and part of his sovereign purposes and plans He is in control of all things. I think what we'll see is that this is one of the main themes of the entire book of Revelation. But we we begin to see it here in this vision, that God is not only majestic and wonderful and awe-inspiring, but he is also in control of all things. Finally, the last picture I think we see here is a beautiful picture of the story of redemption the concept and the story of redemption. In chapter five, we're introduced to a scroll. And there's this scroll that is sitting beside the throne of God. And John observes that on it is written all sorts of things. And it is sealed uh, with seven different seals. And so a lot of people have debated as to what this sort of scroll means, what it represents. And most people believe uh, that it is the story of redemption. It's the history of God's work to redeem a people to himself. Some people speculate that all the words on there are the names of all the people that are God's people, that are the redeemed ones, the rescued ones, the saved ones. But at the end of the day, this scroll contains the story and the history of redemption, the destiny of the world that is around us. But we're introduced to a problem And the problem is that no one is able to open the scrolls. And what happens to John? He recognizes this problem and it says he begins to weep uncontrollably because no one is there to open the scrolls. And then a lamb who looks as if it has been slain stands up to open the scrolls. And what we discover is that he is the one who is worthy, not just worthy, but also worthy and able to open the scroll. And you expect the one who opens the scroll to be a warrior that emerges in all of his might and all of his strength. But instead, what we get a picture of is that the, that the one who stands to open the scrolls is a lamb who looks as if he has been slain. And then once that lamb stands to open the scrolls, all of the heavens erupt. I think that's the best word for it. All of the heavens erupt 
with song and praise for this lamb. You see, friends, what I think we're getting here is a picture, a heavenly picture of the redemption offered to us in Jesus Christ. Because the story of redemption tells us that our sin had condemned us. It had, it had polluted us. It had polluted our souls. And what the story of redemption also tells us is that we are not worthy or even able to accomplish our own rescue and redemption. And realizing that fact should cause us to weep, just as John wept in this story. But also, just as John wept in this story and his eyes were lifted up, so the gospel lifts our eyes up so that we no longer need to weep because our rescuer has come. But our rescuer is not a warrior. Instead, he is a lamb. Our redemption was not secured through might and strength. It was accomplished through weakness. The God of the universe became a lamb who was led to the slaughter. And because of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, our rescue from sin and death could be secured. He is the only one worthy. He accomplished it all through the cross. And so the story of redemption reaches its climax in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But not just the story of, our, of redemption and the redemption of the world, but our individual stories as well. The story of our personal redemption, the story of our lives, all of those things reach their climax in the life, death, and resurrection of the Lamb. And so we see these powerful images of the majesty of God. We see this powerful image of the control of God. We see this powerful image of the redemption of God. And so what should our response be to all of it? How should we respond to these pictures that we see? And of course, we see it all over the passage that the only appropriate response to all of it is to worship. Look at verse 11. Then I looked and I heard around the throne the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels numbering myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice. Now just imagine the sheer volume of myriads and thousands upon thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. See, friends, the book of Revelation is full of images. It's full of pictures. But, don't, but make no mistake, this is as real as it gets. This picture of God shatters the boredom and the dullness of our lives with a picture of the majesty of God. This picture of God shatters the feelings of chaos and helplessness that life sends our way. It shows us a picture of God who is in control, sitting on his throne. But perhaps more than anything, this picture of God shatters the realities of sin and death with the victory of a lamb who was slain for you and for me. This is about as real as it gets. And so let this reality 
draw you into a life of worship. Let this reality capture your hearts and your souls. Let it fill you with awe and affection for our God so that we live lives of utter worship to our great God. Let's pray.